So we're kind of landing the plane again on this whole indispensable series. And let me give, give you the, the cliff notes if, um, if you're not familiar with what we've been doing. So the idea is, the idea is, as we started out week one, we said, you know, raise your hand if you're a results-driven person. And again, you know, all the type A people, you know, raise their hand. And so it's so very good. And, 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 and after that, the idea behind this is, and the kind of the premise for this series is simple. It's that there are areas of your life, and there are areas of my life, and there are areas of all of our lives. And for some of us, it's one or two areas, but for some of us, it's many, many areas where results matter. Where results matter. Where the effect of whatever effect you're going for is at the end of the day what's important. For instance, many of you are in school. And the goal is that you're going to get an education. The goal is that you're going to get a degree. And the goal is that you're going to have at some point a result, which is a job. Or at least your parents are praying that happens. For many of us, we have relational goals. We have relational dreams. This is the type of person that you want to marry. This is the type of husband. This is the type of wife. This is the type of marriage. You maybe have goals for kids, you know. This is the type of kids we'd like to raise. These are the things we'd like them to value. You have financial goals. You maybe have travel goals. But all of us, in whatever arena or whatever areas, and for many of us, again, multiple areas of our life, we have goals. There are results that you want to see and that I want to see. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. That's not a bad thing at all. But here's the temptation. We said this every week. Here's the temptation of results. The temptation of results is that as you see results, you and I have a tendency to focus more on the result than the core ideas or the core principles that drove those results in the first place. Now, tons of applications, not necessarily spiritual for this. In the business place, happens all the time. There's a company that's so focused on profit that they start chasing the profit rabbit. And as they're chasing the profit, 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 oftentimes they deny the core practices, sometimes the core principles, sometimes you know, the, the, the key uh, goods that they used to distribute and used to make and manufacture. And all of a sudden they look up and they're not profitable anymore. And they say, what happened? It's simple. It's the results temptation. That the longer you do something specifically, and the longer you see results with that, the more that there's a temptation to focus on the results. In fact, I think probably the greatest example of this, I think the greatest example of this is with your education. You know, if there was ever a place where people didn't actually care about the education but the end goal, which is the degree... And so we, you know, oftentimes, I mean, we shirk responsibilities, we skip class, we, you know, cheat on tests, we just, you know, all kinds of stuff, and, and here's why. Because at the end of the day, school's fine, school's good, but very few of us actually value the process of education. Most of us have a huge value on the degree. And here's, here's you know, take it any, any place in life, we talk about this every week, relationships happens all the time. You got a couple that's so focused on being the couple that never fights that they never talk. You got some, the other couple that fight all the time. They think we have great communication. It's like, no, you're just not compatible. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Now, if it was just kind of like, you know, different areas of life, then that'd be one thing. But the reason that that's important is because you and I, you and I as Christians face that same temptation. In fact, every church in America faces what we call the results temptation. And as a result... Churches across America, and specifically Christians across America, do things that they think is the result of their faith as opposed to to focusing on the core ideas and principles that drove those results in the first place. And consequently, you've seen it all the time, hypocrisy runs crazy. That depending on what church you you go to, there's all kinds of ways that this implements itself. 
and manifests itself. Hypocrisy, judgmentalism. Some churches, you're so focused on growth and growing and growing and growing, there's no depth. Some churches are so depth, 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 there's no growth. But for churches across America and for Christians across America, there's all kinds of issues that come up with this. And for many of you, if we're just being honest, for many of you who maybe walked into church for the first time in a long time, you walked away from your faith maybe for a season or a semester or, you know, a few years. For many of you, this is your story. Because you had a Christian or you had a group of Christians or perhaps you had an entire church. And you looked at them, and you thought, well, if you're a Christian, if you're a group of Christians, if you're a church, then it doesn't it seem like one of the core tenets of your faith is to do X, and if you were to do X, then how in the world would you do Y? If you're a Christian, how could you behave like that? If you're a Christian, how could you treat people like that? I mean, come on, if you're a Christian, how could you judge? I mean, come on, wasn't Jesus, you know, didn't he love the sinners? Wasn't Jesus accepting of whoever? And so if you're a Christian, how could you act like that? How could you behave like that? How could you treat people like that? And no church wakes up on Sunday morning and says, man, we just can't wait to be so hypocritical today. We just can't wait to drive people away. We can't wait to be such a bad church that we hope that people just leave God for seasons of their life. But here's what happens. Churches face them temptation. And they deny some core realities, some core ideas, some core principles. And as a result, go way down a trail that they shouldn't have gone. Now, the whole idea behind this series for us is to look at that and say, so what are the indispensable pieces? What are the pieces that we just can't miss? What are the pieces that we as a church body collectively, and we believe that you as an individual and me as an individual are just indispensable for our faith? What are the two or three things that if we just swing and miss on everything else, we whiff on everything else, you know, it just doesn't happen, we're a little bit off here, we're a little bit off there, but what are the two or three things that we have to get right, and if we don't, people will get hurt, and people will start to see us. As that group. So week one, we talked about this. That a love for God, a love for God drives everything. Critical to your relationship, critical to your religion, critical to your spirituality is a love for God. And a love for God is not something that you can just decide, hey, today I'm going to love God. I'm just deciding to love God today. A love for God is ignited by a realization of God's love for you, displayed through the cross. That when Jesus died, he died for anybody and for everybody. That anybody and everybody who would want to and would look to and would place their faith in him. There's ultimate forgiveness, no matter what you've done. There's ultimate grace, no matter who you are. No matter how many times you turn your back, no matter how many times you said, I don't believe, no matter how long you walked away. That ultimately, Jesus' death on the cross... And his love poured out for you and for me when none of us deserved it ignites a love for him. Week two, he said this. A love for God, a love for God drives a love for people. Indispensable part two is this. Core to the belief of faith is that there is a direct relationship between the depth of your love for God 
in the way in which you love people. There is a relationship between the depth of your relationship with God and the way that you love people. Which means, as Christians, we talked about this last week, and for some of you, we were at the 11.15 service, and we were talking, and about 10 minutes before the sermon ended, um, it seemed a bit heretical, because I was saying morality doesn't matter, you know, what you do and what you don't do, it doesn't matter, and, and all that kind of stuff, and then somebody left, and I'm like, you should have stayed till the end, so they're probably never going to come back. But for all the rest of us who stayed, you, you know, this, this was the end of the sermon. What Paul says, what Paul says in Galatians is, hey, you know, he's talking about circumcision. He says, man, circumcision, uncircumcision, that, which was kind of their benchmark. That was their floor-level version of morality back in the Bible day. He said, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, the reason that Christians behave like Christians behave is because it's the loving thing to do. It's the loving thing to do. Why don't Christians lie? It's not just because the Bible says so. The Bible does say so. Say so. The reason that Christians don't lie is because lying hurts people. If you think of the two or three times that you've probably been hurt the worst in your life, it was probably because someone said something and they didn't keep up their end of the bargain. They hurt you because they betrayed your trust. Christians don't just not lie because you ought not lie. Christians don't lie because lying hurts people and it tears the fabric of relationship. And loving people don't intentionally hurt people. The Bible talks about drinking. Don't get drunk on much wine. And which we just like to say, period. So don't ever drink. No, he says this. He says this. He says, don't get drunk on much wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, encouraging one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. AKA, here's the point. You're going to be a more loving person under the influence of the Holy Spirit than under Captain Morgan. It's just true. And the idea behind this is, you know, I don't, you know, you shouldn't do that because the Bible says so and your body's a temple. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Absolutely true. But you're just going to be a more loving person. And Christians always pick, Christians always pick, Christians always pick the loving thing to do. And here's kind of the, the simple way to look at it. A love for God drives a love for people. A love for God drives a love for people. Now, today, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, we're going to look at the last piece, which is what we feel is indispensable. Now, let me tell you what we're going to talk about, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time kind of explaining it and teasing it out a little bit. Here's, here, here's what it is. Cliff notes of the, of the whole sermon today. A love for God, which drives a love for people, manifests itself in making disciples. A love for God, which drives a love for people, manifests itself in making disciples. And here's the difference. For many of us, when you think of loving God and loving people, when you think of loving God and loving people, the idea is loving God and loving people manifests itself in being a nice person. And that's not wrong. But that's not all. For the early church, for the early church, come on, when they saw, when they saw Jesus and when they understood all of his teachings, when they understood all the stuff that was going on, when they understood this love relationship with him, when they understood how that drove them to treat people, there was this critical focus that it drove them to. That the most loving thing that I can do is to make disciples, not simply to be a nice person. Now, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28. Many of you, you know, you're familiar with this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It's called the Great Commission. So let me give you a little, you know, preview for those of you guys who aren't super Bible-y. Now, 
Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, you know, Matthew kind of recounts a bunch of Jesus' life. He's one of the, you know, two or three or four guys who, who wrote about Jesus' life. And it's, and it's documented here in the scriptures. Well, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has lived, performed tons of miracles, kind of validated and substantiated who he is, done a whole lot of stuff. And at the tail end of this, Jesus dies, which was a big deal because they didn't think he was going to die. In fact, nobody expected him to die. And when he did die, nobody, nobody, nobody expected him to rise from the dead. In fact, you should read that. We're going to talk about that, I'm sure, you know, sometime next semester. So Jesus rises from the dead. And he shows up a number of times over about a 40-day period. And the account that we're going to read is Jesus' final words to his disciples. In fact, he's going to talk specifically to some of his core group. Now, when Jesus spoke, and we're going to talk about this next week when we are doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus spoke, there was three groups of people. There was the apostles, which were the 11 or 12. There were the disciples, who was kind of the, the, the people who would follow him. And then there was the crowd, which sometime would be you know, 200, 300, 2,000, 3,000. Well, at this particular time, Jesus is talking to his close disciples, and specifically, he's talking to his apostles. And so he kind of give, gathers everybody together, his closest group. He says, okay, before I leave, before I leave, I got some things I want to tell you. In fact, I got one thing that I want you to know. So Matthew chapter, chapter 8, 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So Jesus told them, hey, I want you to go to this mountain. So they're all showing up. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But, and let me just pause and say this. I love this verse. And I'm going to tell you why I love this verse. Because this is a verse, this, this next little comma, but... It's not something that if you were making this whole thing up, if you were making up Christianity, if you just, you know, wanted to control people, and do, I mean, you, just, you wouldn't include this detail. And here's what he says, but some doubt it. Now, let me just tell you why I love the honesty of the Bible. Because if I was making this up, this is Jesus' closest people. This is Jesus' core group. These are his apostles. These are his disciples that are gathered around. These are the guys who watched this dude turn a little breadcrumb and a little fish and fed 5,000 people. These are some of the people that were on the boat when all of a sudden the boat's going nuts and everybody's freaking out. And all of a sudden Jesus just is like, why are y'all freaking out? And they're like, Jesus, because we're about to die. And so he says, all right, wind waves chill. And the wind waves chill and they're like, you know, another time they're on the boat because Jesus, you know, kind of was up on the, you know, the, the, the hills and doing some stuff and nobody knew. And all of a sudden it's going nuts again and, you know, wind. And all of a sudden they see this guy walking. They're like, is it a ghost? <laughs> Not close. It's Jesus who's walking on the water. I mean, they'd seen this guy walk on water. They'd see him calm, you know, the, the winds and the waves. They had seen him bring, you know, multiple people who didn't have sight to have sight. They had seen him bring people back to life who were dead. In fact, they had seen him himself crucified, dead, buried, not just like dead, buried, maybe he wasn't fully dead, embalmed and come back to life. And some of them saw him on the last time he was about to go to heaven. They're just sitting there saying, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I'm just thinking, if it's me, if I saw that, I'd be like, are you kidding me? But again, the Bible, man, it's just so honest. It says, you know, man, after all of that, all of that happened. These people witnessed it. They saw it. They saw the miracles. They saw the death. They saw him after death. And some of them just couldn't quite put their finger on it. And in spite of that, Jesus says. And Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I have all the power. I have all the authority. And I can do anything, and I can say anything. And I have the power and the authority to do anything that I want to. And so with all the power, with all the authority, knowing everything, being able to control everything, here's what I want you to do. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now when he said that, here was the implication. I want you to go and I want you to find people. And as you go through life, as you go from city to city and from town to town, I want you to go. And I want you to help people who have no belief to have belief, who have never heard of me to place their faith, hope, and their trust in what you've seen. I want you, who just a few weeks ago, in fact, about a month and a half ago, deserted me and, and just when I died, I mean, just everybody abandoned. I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples. I want you to take people who have no faith and help them to place their faith in me. Now, here's why that's important. When many of us think about making disciples, we usually jump in one or two categories. Many, many of us either think when it comes to discipleship, we are to take people who already have faith and take their faith deeper. Or we think out reaching out to people, maybe friends, maybe coworkers, maybe family members, I mean, whoever it is, anybody and everybody. You think about people who have no faith and helping them to come to faith. But when he said make disciples, it wasn't categorical like we see. It was helping people who maybe have never heard of the name of Jesus before. Helping them to place their faith, their hope, and their trust in Jesus. And then walking with them through life, teaching them everything that Jesus had taught them. And so Jesus says to them, so here's what I want you to do. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. So he says, okay, so, 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 so here's the marching orders. Here's the commands. I want you to take people who have no faith. I want you to introduce them to faith. And then I want you to walk with them. And I want you to teach. I want, to, I want you to teach them what I have taught you. I want you to teach them what I have taught you. And the command of Scripture for us in our lives is so simple. It's so simple. It's that people who love God, people who love God and love people who are mature believers have a focus on discipleship, have a focus on making disciples. In fact, not just mature believers, it's the call of all believers to go and to make disciples. And I love it because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus said, <laughs> so I know, because I know, I know your reaction. I know some of you guys doubted. I know some of you, you're still a little bit unsure. You're not sure where to go with this whole thing. So let me just tell you, let me just tell you, let me just tell you. I know that you feel underqualified. You do. I know that you feel unprepared. You do. But let me just lean into that for a second. And before you think you have to carry the weight of this message, 
Before you think you have to have the exact right thing to say, because I know some of you guys are thinking about this, you're thinking, man, I've got some friends and I want to have a conversation, or maybe I feel like I ought to have a conversation, but I don't know the right words to say, and what if I mess it up? <laughs> Jesus will look at it and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you go down that road, because it's an easy road to go down, I want you to know, I have all the power and I have all the authority. And this last little part, and I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, so I just, before you think it's on your qualifications, let me just tell you, let me just tell you, that I'm the one with the power, I'm the one with the authority, and I'm the one who's going to be with you as you help other people to believe in me. Later on, Paul would, Paul would see this and how he would articulate it. It was just really it was brilliant. He, he'd say this. He'd say it's like we're ambassadors for God. And that he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is a huge idea. It's a beautiful idea that God and us can be reconciled to each other because the premise of all religion in the world is that God is holy and God is pure and we're not. And regardless of what religion you're a part of, what religion you look at, the idea is how do we find ourselves in God's good graces? How are we reconciled to God? How are we made right with God? How are we made good with God and even with God? And the message of Christianity is that there's nothing that you can do. It's only what Jesus did when he paid the price for our sins. When he gave everyone forgiveness who would place their faith, hope, and trust. And Paul would say, he has given us this ministry of reconciliation as if God were making his plea through us. Not as if. I'm responsible for making the plea on behalf of God and i got to have the right things to say and the right words to say and the right qualifications and have gone to Bible study for enough years and have, you know, done all these studies and I have to, you know, know exactly what my theology is on, you know, i got to know all these details. He said, no, 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 no. As if God were making his plea through us, be reconciled. To God. When the early church, when the early Christians got, that we, I mean, if, if there's one thing that I say, you know, a lot of us, we think about loving God, we're, you know, we're tracking with that one. When a lot of us think about, you know, loving God, impacting a love for people, we're, you know, we're tracking with that one. But the thing that we, I believe, are the most off on is that a love for God, which drives a love for people, in the New Testament, manifests itself or was focused around making disciples. And again, for us, a love for God, which drives a love for people, oftentimes stops at being a nice person. Indispensable part three is discipleship. Indispensable part three is making disciples. Let me just pause and say, you know, this is kind of a shameless plug. This is why we think community groups are so huge. And let me piece together how this whole idea works. For us, this love God, love people, make disciples. This love God 
be great neighbors is how we say that. Because one day somebody asked, okay, so Jesus, who's, who's the neighbor I'm supposed to love? And when Jesus replied back to him, it wasn't, so this is the neighbor. He said, instead of just, you know, telling you how, you know, you know, who's your neighbor, let me just tell you how to be a great neighbor. There's a parable of the Good Samaritan. You should read it. Jesus says, this guy didn't stop, this guy didn't stop. They're both spiritual people. They shouldn't stop. But then this one weirdo stopped. Which one was the neighbor? And he said, well, the, the weirdo was the neighbor, the Samaritan. And he said, okay, very good. Go do the same thing. Well, Jesus, I asked who? He said, no, I'm not, I don't care who. I'm going to teach you how to be a great neighbor. Our entire church, our entire church is designed around these three principles because we don't want to miss them. We think they are vital. We think they are critical. Sundays, Sundays is where we try to get as many people as possible to fall in love with God, to fall in love with Jesus. We want to introduce you. We hope that as we teach, we hope that as we sing, that maybe, you know, you're singing and the songs are, you know, pretty good and pretty decent and you know they're a little bit engaging and eventually you start to see the song as a prayer and you're actually singing to God we hope that as we teach on Sunday man that it's not just some dull it's not some born that even if you don't believe in God you're going to walk away thinking that makes sense though that's our hope that's our hope if you walk away even if you walk away and you just want to take the Bible and you say well I'm not really sure I'm gonna go read it for myself man we would love for you to fall in love with God and the primary thrust of how we do that is Sunday morning And for us, the next step of loving people, the next step of loving people, we do all kinds of community outreaches. We do all kinds of ministry to the marginalized. We do all kinds of ministry to the poor. But the big thing that we do in all of that is just to love people well. And we want to take next steps with you through that, through all of our community outreaches. But the the love for people is manifest in making disciples. And so we have community groups. We believe that community groups, we believe that, that one-on-one, that interactional, some, that not always, all the time one-on-one, but we believe that interactional sense that leads to oftentimes one-on-one relationships where you can get poured into, where you can take your faith, because let's just be honest, some of you need to. Some of you, you've been at Florida State for four years. You're, you're, you're about to be a CPA. You could handle all my finances and all my investments, but you couldn't lead a community group. And you've been a Christian the entire time. Some of you, you're a nurse. You could perform part of a surgery. Like you, could, you, could, you, you could kill me, and I wouldn't know about it practically, you know? You could do some things and cut some places, and I would be dead in, uh, in a minute and a half. You could bring me back to life. You know, you're like a modern-day kind of Jesus. But you couldn't lead a Bible study. You couldn't share your faith. And we believe that depth in your relationship with God, God grows in community. Grows as iron sharpened iron and grows as, as you interact and engage with one another in a group setting. And so these indispensable pieces aren't just ideas for us. This is everything that we do. This is everything that we do. And our hope, our hope, our hope is that as we do this, as we do this, the message of Jesus through the love of Jesus would go forward and disciples would be made and that you would take your faith and you would be able to articulate it. You would take your faith and you would be able to lead with it. You would take love for your, your love for God and the depth of your relationship would be so great that it would drive you to love people and that love for people, you'd be a nice person but it would manifest itself in making disciples. So I just want you to know, when we started this series, it wasn't just, okay, so what's important? These are the cornerstone to everything that we are as a church. So our entire mission is simple. 
Love God. Make disciples. Be great neighbors. Love God. Make disciples. Be great neighbors. Love God. Make disciples. And be great neighbors. And it's our hope that wherever you are in your faith walk, wherever you are in your journey with God, whatever that next step is for you, whether it's continuing to show up on Sunday and hopefully dwelling up a love for God, hopefully, you know, interacting with the scriptures, hopefully interacting with some Christians and seeing God's love through his word and through his people. Whether for you that, you know, manifests itself and taking the next step and getting involved in a community group. Or whether for you that manifests itself in a way that you serve. But it's our hope that we would reach people with the message of God. With the message of Jesus as we're impacted by Jesus to love God, make disciples, and be great neighbors. We're going to end our service this morning this way. We're going to take communion. On the night right before Jesus died, he kind of gathered all of his closest people around. And he said, I want you to, to do something. Before, before, you know, we're going to go through an incredible amount of stuff. But before we do, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take this bread and I'm going to break it. And it's going to be like my body. And I want you to take it and I want you to eat it. And I want you to do it in remembrance of me. And here's my, you know, here's this cup, and he took the cup, and they all drank from it. In fact, they each had their own. He said, this is going to be like my blood. That's going to be poured out for you. And whenever you do, whenever you do, whenever you do, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so the idea when we take communion together centers us back on the cross centers us back where that love of God centers us back on the foundational piece of our faith, the number one thing, the very, very, very central piece that we started at Love One, which is that a love for God is ignited by His love for you. And so we're hoping as you take communion today, you're contemplative and you're thinking about that love for you, the blood that was poured out for you, the body that was broken for you.